Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, teach us to use our knees and live without elbows. In Jesus' name, amen. Unless you're a fan of C.S. Lewis or a lover of third century Egyptian patriarchs, you probably don't know much about no knees and no elbow theology. Metaphorically, C.S. Lewis in his book, The Great Divorce, describes heaven as a place where there is an abundance of the most amazing food, but no one has elbows, and thus they cannot feed themselves. They do have extra long spoons, though, which means they can feed the person across the table, and the person across the table can feed them. You see, not having elbows forces you to serve others and allows them to serve you. Abba Apollo, he, he lived around 300 AD, he noted the devil had no knees. He cannot kneel, he cannot adore, he cannot pray. Being unwilling to bend the knee at the name of Jesus, Father Apollo says, is the essence of evil. If one thinks about kneeling, and, and I doubt you do very much, kneeling is not very fashionable. About the only time someone kneels anymore is a proposal on the Hallmark Channel. When a coach or grizzly sergeant tells the team to take a knee, or during confession at church, and more and more we don't even kneel at church much anymore. Most of our pews don't have kneelers, and if they did, all of us could kneel. Whether or not we could get back up, whole different story. At the time of Jesus, the Greeks and Romans knelt before their gods and those who pretended to be gods. Officers and government officials required those who served underneath them to kneel. And if you didn't, you could have your head taken off. Because when you were on your knees, you were vulnerable and you couldn't fight. Kneeling was acknowledgement. The other person had complete and total authority over you. You knelt out of fear. You knelt because you were afraid to stand and look them in the eye. Aristotle called kneeling a barbaric form of behavior. St. Augustine said, False gods were really demons wearing masks, and kneeling before them made you a superstitious slave. So when St. Paul wrote, For this reason God highly exalted Jesus and gave him the name above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow, those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the church at Philippi, it caused quite a few people to talk about what it all meant. And that brings us back to the theology of no elbows and no knees. Kneeling is either about fear or love. It's about slavery or freedom. And the toughest part about kneeling is just because you are kneeling with your body doesn't mean you're necessarily kneeling with your heart. And just because you aren't kneeling with your knees, it doesn't mean that you aren't kneeling with your heart. It is only when the heart and knees are in agreement that we find a theology worth living for. The Greek word for kneel occurs 59 times in the New Testament, 24 of which, by the way, are found in the book of Revelation. In other words, almost half the number of times the word occurs found in the last book of the New Testament. And as you read these passages, you discover it is always far more about the heart and rarely about the knees. Believers kneel before Jesus, not because he has power over them, but because he surrendered his power in order to save them. It is not Jesus' power we are surrendering and kneeling to. It's his love. This world is full of people who have no knees, at least when it comes to God. 
They bow before technology and money and power and the latest trends, but they see no reason to kneel before God. And when it comes to feeding themselves, well, in that case, they're double-jointed, allowing them to stuff bucketfuls of whatever makes them feel good into their mouth. A journal I follow talks about a developing culture of people who are deeply in love only with themselves. I know we joke about it, especially in the Lutheran church, but the truth is people are not afraid of change. Yeah, Todd Bolsinger pointed this out in his Canoeing the Mountains book, but, you know, it's true. We're not afraid of change. We're afraid of loss. Now, people don't mind change as long as they don't have to give anything up, which is the real problem because almost all change requires giving something up. In other words, you're trading this for this, and I want both. Pews around the nation are about half full compared with pre-pandemic. Number one reason people who used to go to church no longer go to church is I don't need the church anymore. A couple of researchers followed up and says, so why don't you need the church anymore? Some of the answers were, well, you know what? I discovered I have enough friends outside of church. I can worship online and do it when I want, how I want, and change pastors every week. Find somebody I agree with. Sunday is my only me day. But Number one answer, the majority said, I learned the church is trying to take over my life. If you've been in a relationship for three years, you can pretty much finish each other's sandwiches, to quote the movie Frozen. And I have to admit, it comes in handy. So when Nancy says, I'm going to Subway and you want, and I say, yeah, you bet. And she says, with, and I go, yep. I mean, that's, that's great. But what happens when we finish each other's sandwiches with the wrong words? We filled in the blanks that we think it should say, not what they were going to say or what, well, we even would give them the chance to say. When we fill in the blanks and make up our minds when it comes to Jesus, not based on the truth or anything that he actually said, that's when we get into real trouble. There's a difference between Jesus' church and our church. When people say, I don't need the church, they're actually talking about our church if you're on the outside of the stained glass windows, it can be a little overwhelming. And I can understand why people think the church is going to make them give everything up and change their life. You see, I also understand why they aren't ready to make those kind of changes. Because it involves giving up a big part of who they think they are. And if they don't have those things anymore, it's called an identity crisis. And that can be really scary. The church, and I'm talking about all churches of all denominations pretty much everywhere. They tend to act more like a spiritual 12-step program whose sole purpose is to fix people. You walk in a door center. You walk out a saint. And in between is a lot of sacrifice and change and uncomfortableness and pain. And that's what the church is all about. This is why a lot of people see the church as a giant cloning machine, trying to make everyone just like the ones who are already in the church. In our gospel lesson, the church leaders are not happy with Jesus because those people that he's eating with are sinners and they don't deserve the church and they probably are considered unchangeable because they were unwilling to go into the Pharisees' cloning machine. It's a peculiar thing that a doctor can fix your heart, but he can't change it. Medications, procedures, surgery, it's amazing what modern-day medicine can do. But even with all that science, they still can't change your heart. A doctor says, you know, if, if you don't change, you're going to die. And the person says, I'll try. And sometimes they do. But most of the time they don't because 
But whatever it is that they're supposed to give up, it just can't, even if it's killing them. The church can't fix your heart, but it can introduce you to the one who can. Jesus doesn't expect you to come into his church fully changed and without any hang-ups, heartaches, or bad feelings. In fact, if you look at the kind of people Jesus surrounded himself with, well, they weren't even close to being perfect. That's a message that we really do need to get out to the world. It's also a message probably that we, the church, need to get more comfortable with. In Jesus, in, in Jesus' day, the church, the first thing that you learned was that he loved you. You see, when you went to the other church, they just said, give us an offering, give a sacrifice, and we'll tell you what to do. But, but in Jesus' church, the first thing you learned was that he loved you, that he accepted you for who you were at that moment. The verb tense in Greek is called the perfect tense because it's the past, the present, the future. Jesus isn't going to love you if you change. He loves you before you even knew who he was. Now, even when you're trying to figure it out and in the future, that's, that's God's love. See, it's not about who you are or what you aren't. You, no matter who you are or what you are holding on to, what you're protecting because you don't want to change, Jesus says you're still loved. Even if your life is upside down and totally messed up, Jesus sees you the same way that he sees everybody else, unique and unreproducible. Jesus doesn't expect you to be completely and totally transformed, by the way, after just one time at church. The whole learning to kneel and live with no elbows, that takes time. The word repentance is not so much about change in the noun sense as it is about changing in the verb sense. Wouldn't it be great if all you had to do to become perfect was go to church, sit and listen to even a long sermon, give an offering and voila, you're changed. Imagine if you could make all your problems go away just by reading the Bible and saying a prayer. Most people, including those who are outside the stained glass windows, they finish God's sandwiches. They decide what God is going to say, even before God says anything. In fact, they say it even after God said something, and it was really clear what he said. They, they still decide what he really meant. They're afraid of loss, of surrendering the things that are more important to them than their life. And they think God, and they know the church, expects them to give it all up as they walk through those church doors. But repentance is about learning to hold on to the love and forgiveness of God instead of all the stuff that you're holding in your hands right now. It's learning to trust God more than you trust yourself. And that takes time. Repentance is when God enters into your life and slowly pushes out the darkness. And the darkness is replaced by light. And it's a little scary, but because God is with you and has promised never, ever to leave you, you learn to take a very hesitant half-step forward, releasing your grip on the things of the world and letting him lead you forward with the other hand. This is Jesus' church in all of its beauty and glory, not one that expects everything to change in a moment, but is willing to be patient as God, through this spirit and word, work in your life to bring about the change that's necessary. When we're working with service dogs in training, we use a thing called a high-value treat, and it's exactly what it sounds like. 
It's something so yummy that the dog will do whatever you need him to do in exchange for that treat. We use these treats during the more complicated training or to break the dog of a really bad habit. Funny thing is, you know, when you're working with Labradors, <laughs> everything's a high value treat. You know, they'll, they'll stale cookies, old dog food, a wilted carrot. Man, all you gotta do is look at them and say, good dog, do this, and, and they're in. Doodles are different. They have a more refined palate and each one has an individual taste. So you have to work at finding a treat that they're willing to work for. But once you find it, then you can continue with the training. It's not any different with us. Some of us move quicker than others, but it's not a contest. You see, learning to kneel and learning to live with no elbows may not be easy, but it is possible once you see why it's taking place. It's something then you begin to want with all of your heart and mind and soul. We talk a lot about grace in this church, but I recognize that none of us fully understand what grace is. We know grace in its simplest form. Enough that we come back week after week into God's house and hear His promises and sing His praises, hoping to get another taste of grace so that we can understand it just a little bit more. But when I read some of the stories in the Bible, like the man called Legion or Lazarus or St. Paul, and I see how they responded and what it led them to be and do as a result of God's grace, I know there's more to this concept of grace than even I understand. And that's why, like repentance, grace is less about changed in the noun sense and more about changing in the verb sense. There was so much in my life I don't want to surrender, so many times that I just don't want to kneel. And when it comes to letting other people feed me, yeah. But the truth of God, the truth that Jesus promises will set us free, releases us from the bondage that we are in to ourselves. And our no knees, lots of elbows theology that leads us away from Jesus instead of toward him. That's why St. Augustine said that we do not kneel to the power of Jesus, but to the humbleness of Jesus. And if I pray, Lord, teach me to kneel, Jesus is going to respond, you can't teach somebody how to kneel. Instead, he takes me to Matthew's gospel and the story of the wise men. Learn it powerful, wealthy. The Magi come into the presence of God and remember, they're from another culture, another ethnic group, and, and a whole different thought process. And yet here they are for this baby, and they kneel in worship. God came as a tiny little baby, wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger to save the world. Such a sight brought them to their knees, humbled, by the love of God. And such love and forgiveness allows the most rigid knees to creak and pop and finally bend in awe and worship of God's love incarnate. And by the way, if Bethlehem's manger is not enough to get us to kneel, there is a cross and tomb at the end of the Gospels that it is almost impossible not to fall to your knees as you witness what God is doing to save us. In between Bethlehem's manger and Calvary's cross, Jesus teaches us how to live with no elbows. He talks a lot about a banquet. We're seated at a table filled with the finest foods and drinks. The aroma's overwhelming. We're salivating, waiting until we finally say grace, which means we can dive into the food. There's a fork and a spoon in front of us, but we don't have elbows. No matter how hard we try, we can't feed ourselves. And Jesus sits down at the table across from us. He picks up the spoon, fills it with tasty morsels, and reaching across the table, fills our mouth up 
with the most delicious food. And in the process, he teaches us how to feed others and how they can feed us, which is often, by the way, the harder of the two, at least for some of us. When someone says, I don't need the church, I get it. But they do need Jesus. And for a reason that escapes most of us, Jesus has chosen to work through the church, as broken as it is, to lead people to the places and times where he can change their heart. And these places and times are where, with quite a bit of creaking and popping, his love leads us to kneel before him. And his servant's heart teaches us to live with no elbows by relying on the gifts of others. But for this to happen, we have to let God finish his own sandwiches and let him speak his truth which is the only thing that can truly set us free. Quote from Katie J. Davis. And by the way, if you haven't read Katie J. Davis, look up her story. It's, it's amazing. She said, I've been to sweep crumbs and I've been to wipe vomits and I've been to pick up little ones and wipe away tears. And at the end of these days, I've been next to the bed and I ask only that I could bend more, bend lower, because I serve a Savior who came to be a servant. He lived bent low. And he bent down, here is where I see his face. The whole no knees and no elbows theology is all about how love and grace can get us to do things that power and fear cannot. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Mm -hmm.